All right, please turn back to Philippians chapter 1 in your Bible. We are working our way through the book of Philippians uh, for a summer series here. And it's just wonderful to be reminded of these basic and incredible truths that are uh, filling this book. Let me try to sort of catch everybody back up to speed in case you're visiting or just to sort of remind you of what we talked about last week, if you remember. Um, Paul heads to Jerusalem to give a gift, uh, an offering of money from Gentile, largely Gentile churches to the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem. And remember, he, he prayed about this situation. And in one sense, his prayer came true. In one sense, his expectations did not exactly get met. Remember, he was hoping that after he dropped off that money, by his own freedom, he would head west to uh, Rome, and he would meet the church there, and then he would head, remember, to Spain. Spain was on the other side of the empire, and he was going to spend probably, and if we're guessing, the next four or five years of his life, the prime of his life as a missionary, trying to plant churches in the major cities on the other end of the Roman Empire. Now, did Paul get his wish? No. Instead, while in Jerusalem, Paul gets arrested after people start a riot about him, and he spends the next two years in prison near Jerusalem in Caesarea, and then he spends about four or five months traveling to Rome, almost dies, I don't know, eight times on that journey. It's a, you should read Acts 27 if you haven't recently. It's just amazing. And then he gets to Rome at the end of Acts, and he spends two more years waiting for his trial before uh, Caesar, Nero, and Paul is writing the book of Philippians near the end of those four and a half years of things not going quite the way Paul would have picked or chosen. And let me just remind you quickly of last week's passage. I'll read it again. This is chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 12 to 18. Paul is catching them up to speed on his present condition. Remember, he's shackled to a Roman guard. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And what we learned was Paul's joy was not attached to his plans. That stings, doesn't it, for me? His joy was not attached to his circumstances in any kind of way you would think. He is not where he wants to be, and does that impede his joy? No. His joy is advancing. How? Four and a half year detour. Chained to a Roman soldier because the gospel is being advanced amongst these soldiers and amongst other unbelievers in the city of Rome. And since Paul's joy is attached to the advance of the gospel, not himself or his glory, Paul has reason to rejoice, even though he's bound in chains like a criminal. Secondly, there are professing Christians who are jealous of Paul and they're preaching his gospel, the true gospel, 
but they're doing it to try to kind of jab Paul, to try to steal the spotlight from Paul while he's off to the side in house arrest. And Paul says, hey, even if they're preaching from bad motives, if they're preaching the true Jesus and the true gospel, I'm going to rejoice at that too. So Paul, we are seeing his joy is unstoppable, and we are going to see more of his unstoppable joy in today's passage. So you notice that verse 18 is sort of awkward. Have you all seen that? It looks like the verse division is kind of in the wrong spot there. You see, like, it kind of breaks away in most translations. Um, what's going on is 18, Paul wraps up talking about his joyful present. Okay, so everybody follow this. Last Sunday was Paul talking about his present condition right now. That's his joyful present. And now today's passage, which starts at the end of 18, yes, and I will rejoice, and goes all the way through 26, Paul is talking about his joyful future. You got that? So last week, his joyful present. This week, he is opening up his joyful future, and the future is not that far away because he is close, he thinks, to standing before uh, the Roman imperial court and giving his defense of Christ. Now, let's just read today's text, and then we'll walk through it again more carefully. End of verse 18, he transitions to the future joy here. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So as we get into this, just a, a one-sentence summary of what we're talking about today. I'm adapting this sentence from a commentator. So here's kind of the whole sermon in a sentence. As Paul tells the Philippians about his immediate future, standing before Caesar, as he tells the Philippians about his immediate future, he disciples them on how to live and die for the glory of Christ. I'll say that again. As Paul tells the Philippians about his immediate future, he disciples them on how to live and die for the glory of Christ. You ever get uncomfortable reading Paul when he says things like, imitate me as I imitate Christ? I think that's 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, all ones. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, I think it is. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we say that sounds kind of arrogant or that sounds a little bit, I don't know, I wouldn't want to say that. But Paul is thinking, he's always doing two things when he talks about himself. He is talking about what's going on, but he's also modeling for all his readers how we should be responding to difficult and diverse circumstances. So he's never just telling them what's up. You know how it is in our conversations, in my conversations? I'm just sort of talking, venting about what's going on in my life. And there's not necessarily a spiritual point to what I'm doing. I'm just sort of saying things kind of haphazardly. Suddenly I'm kind of gossiping a little bit. Suddenly I'm kind of complaining. I know you're very much, you guys are much further along if you cannot relate to that. Okay, that, that is just, I'm just, I'm talking. And suddenly I kind of said something a little negative about somebody. I probably shouldn't have said that. Okay, now I'm complaining about, you know what I'm talking about? I just, I'm just sort of talking. And Paul's not just talking. He's not just writing. Paul is always doing two things. He's telling you about his life, but he's doing it insofar as he can model to others what a Christ-centered life should be like. 
and how we should respond to difficult circumstances. And the Philippians are facing persecution. If you don't believe that, just look with me at verse 28. He says, they should not be frightened in anything by your opponents. They had opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you see? The Philippians are experiencing persecution kind of like Paul's. His is harder, but they're in a similar camp here. And Paul is trying to show them by example how they are to be living. Look with me here uh, again at this verse, and let's think about how the uh, Philippians would have read this the first time through. Okay, so just let's, let's try to humanize Paul. Okay, let's take off Paul's cape for a second. He's a real person. Remember, Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. Remember, James said that Paul was a man of like passions as we are, and he needed the Spirit. Paul said, in, my, in me dwells no good thing. Romans 7, right? So Paul was sinful without the Spirit. So he has the same Spirit that you have uh, access to. And so let's learn here from Paul. If you're in prison, or at least house arrest, chained to a guard, and you're awaiting a hearing before a group of people, including Caesar, who don't really care whether you live or die, do you think Nero was up at night? What if I don't bring justice to Paul? He doesn't care. Nero is not concerned ultimately about justice. You can just read about Nero's life, especially toward the end before his suicide. At age 30, by the way, he was young when he saw Paul. He was 24 probably when Paul stood before him. And don't think about that, but Nero was probably about 24 years old when Paul, as a 60-year-old or so, stood before him. It's amazing. And so um, Nero doesn't care about those kinds of things. So imagine you're writing a letter to a church and you're about to face life or death, execution. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he would not have been crucified. He would have been beheaded. You don't crucify Roman citizens except for extraordinary evil. And so Paul would have been beheaded uh, rather than crucified, but he's facing a beheading right maybe a month from now, maybe two months from now, maybe three, but it's right around the corner, or he might be let go. So imagine you're reading this letter from Paul. How would you read this the first time through? Again, verse 18 and 19. By the way, 18 through 20 is one sentence in the original language. 18 to 20 is one sentence. How would you read this? Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, wouldn't you at that point think the deliverance is deliverance from prison? I mean, at that point, if, if a guy's writing from jail about to be either executed or released, and he says, hey, your prayers and the help of the Spirit are going to get me delivered. It's the word for salvation, soterion, for salvation. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be delivered. And perhaps at this point, the Philippians think he means set free. Now, Paul is probably, he, he was set free, and he thinks he's going to be set free. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I know there are respectable commentators who disagree with me here. I don't think that's right. Because... Paul is convinced he's going to be saved, delivered, and then he's going to look at verse 20. How's this going to happen? Look at 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, 
but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life, period. That would make sense, right? I'm delivered, I'm being set free, so Christ is gonna be honored through my life, through me being set free. And if he meant physical deliverance, that's how he would have probably ended the sentence. But how does he end the sentence? I'm gonna be delivered whether by life or by death. I think he's trying to take the Philippians' understanding of what a win would be, right? What's a big win for Paul? What's him being delivered? What's him being saved in prison? And they're thinking saved means temporal salvation. It means you're not beheaded. It means they take the shackles off and you can go free. You're a free man. You're delivered. You're saved. And they may have thought that all the way through that long sentence until Paul gets to the very end and he turns the understanding on its head and goes, I'm going to be saved. I'm going to be delivered whether they let me go free or if they kill me. And now the Philippians have to reread the sentence. Do you see what's maybe going on here? Because the word could mean either thing. But I think Paul is talking about something deeper and far more profound than physical deliverance right here. And he's going to tell us what it is. I hope you're in the mood for rereading, because I'm going to be doing a lot of rereading verses today, because it just, okay, I, I, get, I, I worry about saying things like this, because it sounds like you're, I don't know, but, but I spent hours this weekend trying to understand what the word delivered mean in this text. I probably spent four or five hours of the weekend. It's one of the hardest things I've done in a while, trying to settle on that word delivered, because there's three or four views, and they all sound good to me. So he, here's what I think is going on. I don't think it's referring to physical deliverance or salvation. Here's why. That word I mentioned, soterion, right, where we get the word salvation, Paul uses that word 17 times in his letters, 17 times. Every other time he uses it, it's referring to salvation with Jesus, not physical salvation. Are you following that? 16 other times it refers to spiritual salvation in some sense, some kind of deliverance. And the other two times he uses it in this book, it means spiritual. Again, I read verse 28, of your salvation and that from God. Same word for delivered. And look at 2.12. This one helps a little bit. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more as in my absence, work out your soterion, your salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, it's, getting, it's a little complicated, so just hang with this for a second. Paul can use salvation in different senses. So, you know, we will say, I got saved when I was 16. Right? It's a done deal. That's the past tense. It's a finished act. I, that what we mean is, I was forgiven, I was justified, I was declared righteous by faith alone in Christ to the glory of God, and I contributed nothing to it but the sin that made it necessary. Right? So if you're a believer, you are saved. You are justified. You are in the right. But are you perfect right now? We won't ask for a show of hands. But I don't think we were going to volunteer that we're perfect right now. Paul said he wasn't perfect in 3.12. Not that I am perfect. We're not perfect. But Paul can speak of salvation as an ongoing process, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is at work in us. So what's going on there is this is us becoming more and more like Jesus, right? We're becoming more and more sanctified, more like Christ. And then there's a future tense of the word. When Christ returns, he will save us from the future wrath. He will save us. 
Well, what do you mean? He will save us. I thought we are saved. Do you see? So we are saved in the sense of we are forgiven already. We are being saved in the sense of we are becoming more like Jesus day by day. It's a slow and agonizing process. 10 steps forward, 11 steps back. Anyone know what I'm talking about? 15, you know, so you're going up and down, but eventually over time, there's progression. And then when we get our resurrection body or if we die before Christ returns, we are perfected. The resurrection in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed, never to be unchanged. And so when Jesus returns, we will be perfected. We will be sinlessly glorified forever, never to sin again. And Paul is saying here, yes, Paul's looking to that future salvation, but he's saying, I want God to do a salvation work, a, a, a transformative work in my life right now. And I think that because of verse 20. So I'm going to reread 19 and 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, do you see? Paul is highlighting right now the present. He says, now, as always, so he's thinking about now, and he says, in my body, not after I die, because then you're out of the body, right, before the resurrection. So Paul is emphasizing, I want God to deliver me. I want him to work a work, a saving work in me. I want him to transform me now in my body so that when I'm standing before Nero and his group, the imperial courts, when I'm standing there, everything in my flesh is going to want to cower in fear because they can snap their finger. Remember the Caesar? Remember the thumbs up, thumbs down kind of stuff? I mean, Caesar can do whatever he wants to Paul. If he's having a bad morning, you know, he woke up and he didn't get his coffee. You don't want to meet Nero when he has not had his coffee, I will tell you. And, you know, Nero comes into the proceeding to see Paul, and he's had a bad night of sleep, and he's kind of angry, and he just looks at Paul, and he's like, what is this guy, Jesus, Nazareth, what are you talking about? Ah, uh, just kill the guy. I mean, that's what you're dealing with, okay? And so, Paul, there is reason to fear in your flesh standing before this guy. And Paul's flesh is going to make him become ashamed and cowardly about the gospel because he's just trying to save his skin. Right? He could be less bold about Jesus in this hearing before all these famous people, all these powerful people. What, what an opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful people on earth at the time, the rulers of Rome. Or he can try to sort of protect himself and be a little less direct about Jesus, you see, and try to get out easier. You see, the pressure to not be bold would be overwhelming if it was me. I would just, don't hurt me. Any, whatever I got to say, just to get me out of here, it's almost like Peter on the night of the betrayal, right? Just, oh, there's a servant girl. Do you know Jesus? Never heard of Jesus. I uh, don't know who he is. You know, just that, Paul could have fallen to that kind of cowardly, shameful fear in a heartbeat. You say, not Paul. Yes, Paul, because Paul needs the spirit just as much as we do. Paul was not Superman. He was not Paul because he was Paul. He was Paul because of the grace of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus made him the apostle Paul, not some hard work on his part. And so Paul says, listen, I want deliverance through your prayers and the help of the spirit. Just, just pause here as we're building this thought. 
I love this because the giving of the Spirit in verse 19, the help of the Spirit, is tied directly to what? The prayers of the Philippians. So, I mean, Paul's praying for them in verses 9 to 11. And he says, I hope you're praying for me too. See, it's not one way. It's not like Paul's praying because you really need his help. No, Paul, Paul's praying for you. You Philippians better be praying for me, Paul says. I need your prayers. Okay, so everybody, every, we need the help of the Holy Spirit every day of the Christian life so that we do not turn into grumbling, resentful, egotistical people. Bitter, lacking forgiveness. You and I, we need the Spirit. And this is why we need to pray for each other. Uh, I mean, seriously, like we need to pray for each other. And I, I know you do, but we need to pray more and more spiritually for one another that we would be bold. Say, at work tomorrow, take someone's name, pray that he or she will speak a word for Christ to a coworker when it is not easy to do so. Pray for this person who's teaching maybe in a public school setting where it's not so easy to talk about Jesus. Pray that even if they're kind of breaking the rules, we'll cut that out of the tape, even the, just say something for Christ. Risk it. Just, just say something for Christ. Find the right moments to address the topic of Jesus. We need to be praying for boldness for one another. I think about, I don't have to turn there, but I think about in Acts chapter 4, if I can find this thing. Listen to this. I love this. They're praying, early disciples. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, trying to kill us, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We need to pray for one another that we would speak the word with boldness. So Paul has got their prayers and the help of the Spirit. It's going to lead to his deliverance. When's the deliverance? It's now. It's in my body. And it's when I stand before those intimidating people. And Paul says, I want to speak. This is back to verse 20. Let me read 20 one more time. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Again, you don't have to turn there, but I just got to give you a sample of this. Because, you know, before this happened, he stood before some kings already. Remember King Agrippa in Acts at Caesarea? Just, just don't turn there, but Paul's making his defense earlier. This is about three and a half years earlier. Paul says, so he's standing before King Agrippa and his wife. And he says this, after presenting the gospel to this king who knows Judaism, Paul says, Talks about Jesus, talks about his encounter with Jesus. And then he says, the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. <laughs> so this other king, there's Festus, he goes, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So Paul's like, okay, this is a little intimidating. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words for the king, the other guy, Agrippa, he knows, uh, King Agrippa knows that these things have not 
been done in the corner. And then he says to King Agrippa in court. I mean, just this is gutsy. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Who, who's accused of a capital crime? I mean, I mean he's, he's at least at stake as a capital punishment. Who sits there in court and looks at the judge, the king, and says, do you believe the prophets of the Old Testament? They're about Jesus. Surely you believe. That, that's courageous. That could annoy him. It could make him mad at you, and you could be in trouble legally, right? So then his, the king is uncomfortable. He doesn't know what to say. King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's about to convert the king while he's on trial and facing possible punishments. I mean, just amazing. And then Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not only that you would, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. See, it already happened. The Spirit showed up, helped Paul in one of his hearings, and Paul was preaching the gospel boldly to people way higher than him in the echelons, right? And now he's about to go to the highest court in the world at the time. And he said, it's not going to happen again automatically. The boldness, you, you know what this is like, right? You, you, uh, you have a non-Christian friend. And, and one day, you just you had a great quiet time. The spirit is just flowing. And you get up there. It's probably not correct language. But you, the spirit is there. And you just start talking to your friend about Jesus. And it's just an awesome conversation. And a week goes by. And you haven't really been in the word. And you're going to meet up with another friend. And you're like, it's going to happen again like magic. And then what happens? You cower out. Chicken out. Right? You've been there? I've been there, right? So you, just because it happened last time is not a guarantee it will happen this time. We need, again, a fresh giving of the Spirit. We need that continual pursuit of the Spirit. And Paul is convinced that that's going to happen. Okay. And I was going to, I won't go there, but I was going to use Stephen because we all, we all know the Stephen story. But remember, Stephen, as he's being accused, preaches a masterful sermon, longest recorded sermon in Acts. And what happens at the end? He accuses them of crucifying the Messiah and then they run at him and begin to stone him. He looks up to heaven, sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he says, Lord Jesus, basically don't charge this against them. Please receive my spirit. And he died with the face of an angel. And Paul was there as a non-Christian, holding the coats as a young man of those who stoned Stephen. That's the kind of boldness that Paul is desiring here, whether by life or by death. Okay. Now, believe it or not, don't run out of here in fear right now. That was the introduction. Now, the sermon will be short. Everyone, do not be afraid. You're like, are we almost done? No, no, no. Now we're getting to the sermon. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? You're, you're welcome. We have two points for today's sermon. There is still time to leave. The doors are unlocked. Maybe we should lock the doors. Okay, two points. Two points. Number one, uh, how to magnify Christ in life. And number two, how to magnify Christ in death. How to magnify Christ in life and how to magnify Christ in death. Now, much of the work has already been done through the introduction, but this next part is so good that I would like to spend several minutes here. Let me just read it for us again, 21 to 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire 
is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, before I get into this, I just, I, when I was in high school, I remember I'd become a Christian. I, I, this is a little embarrassing, but I'll be honest with you. I, I was honestly wondering, is Paul considering suicide? Okay, you, you can laugh, I know. But I was like, what do you mean choose? He's talking about choosing life or death. That's, okay, everybody just clear the air if you've ever wondered about that. Paul's not considering suicide. In fact, if you want me to prove that, I could do that a lot of ways, but one, let's just take an obvious way. One of the people he's writing this letter to is the Philippian jailer. Do you know where I'm going? What did Paul do to the Philippian jailer? He was about to commit suicide. Remember? The Philippian jail, earthquake, he thinks all the prisoners have escaped. The Philippian jailer puts his sword out, is about to commit suicide, and Paul stops him and leads him to Christ. Paul is not pro-suicide. He stops the man at Philippi from committing suicide. Paul's, it's not what's going on here. Paul doesn't have a choice in the matter. It's ultimately God's choice, and humanly speaking, it's Nero's choice or his court. Paul doesn't have a choice, but Paul's simply doing what any of us would do. If you're facing a life or death trial, you're going to play through the two scenarios in your mind, right? If you're facing death, Maybe it's a disease, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's a car accident, something, something happens. You're running through the two possibilities. And you're thinking, well, obviously, I would prefer this to happen than this to happen. Paul's letting us into his inner dialogue, and it goes differently than it would if I was in his position. He's like, well, you know, if I got to choose, I'm clearly choosing death. We're like, <clears throat> uh, Paul? Paul's like, no, I, I'm thinking very clearly right now. Because if I were to die, that would lead me to Jesus. That's gain. But I can see the Lord still has work for me, fruitful labor amongst you guys. I think he's going to leave me here to do that fruitful labor a few more years before I go home. So let, let's now talk about this, this primary issue here. That verse 21 just doesn't get better than this verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, the danger of this verse is the same danger with Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The verse has almost become trite because it gets misused so often. You know what I'm talking about? So to live as Christ, to die as gain sounds great on the wall in the Sunday school classroom, right? But I don't want it to stay there. This verse has to come into real life. And in real life, it is, in one sense, it almost seems brutal. And in another sense, it is glorious freedom. So we're not talking just some kind of trite saying. We're talking Paul's talk in real life here. Bring that amazing statement into real life. What does it mean? So how do we magnify Christ in life and death? And let's just look, look at the logic here. End of verse 20. Now, as always, Christ will be honored or magnified or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, you follow this? Paul's about to tell us how you can glorify God in your life and in your death. So, okay, so this late in the sermon, it's hard to do this part, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, so Paul says, okay, I want Christ to be magnified and honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. What's that going to look like? And he tells you, verse 21, how is Christ going to be honored in your life? And how is he going to be honored in your death? 21, don't miss the first word, for. He's giving you the reason, because. So this is how Christ will be honored in your body, whether you live or die. For, because, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's start with the death part. I'll go backwards here. Christ will be honored in your body when for you to die is gain. That's the argument. Christ will be honored in your body when for you to die is gain. What does that mean? Okay, think, think about this. This is very hard to, to take seriously. It almost sounds silly, but it's not silly. So, um, like, I, I knew a pastor close to my age who had a uh, brain tumor, and it was, it was on the verge of death, uh, two years older than me, a, a while back. So this can happen. So um, imagine I get news very soon that I have a, an illness that is almost certainly terminal. Even though I'm young, it, it, let's just say that happens. What I face to lose is almost extraordinary to put into words. I mean, when I think about it, I want to literally weep. I would lose, at least tempor temporarily, I lose my relationship with my wife and I lose the opportunity to raise my children. <laughs> there's just not word, there, there's no language for the loss of that. Uh, it's very hard to think about. I lose, I mean, if the Lord gave me a full life, I could, I, I could have four more decades of ministry. Four decades, I'm four and a half years in. It could be four decades in front of me that I lose. 40 years of ministry, the opportunities of that, gone, never going to happen. Whatever, I don't have any money, but whatever money's gone, well, pastor, um, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever's there, it's, it's gone. All the relationships, all the friendships, all your faces, at least temporarily, they are stripped away from me. I mean, I, I cannot think of something more horrifying than death. And Paul says, Christ will be honored in your body when for you to die is gain. And what's the reason? Verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, that is die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you see the logic? When you're facing death, you're facing a trade-off as a Christian. You're really going to lose good things when you die. Sorry to say that that way. That's just true. If you're a believer, you're going to lose lots, thousands, every sunrise, every moment with your wife or kids, or every moment hanging out with you, whatever you enjoy, sports or activities, all that in that moment is taken from you. It's, when you think about death, all you see is loss. And Paul looks at the same reality. He'll be losing all these things as well, and he looks at that reality and goes, that, despite all the losses, humanly speaking, when I do the math, it's actually tremendous gain. How does that honor Christ? The, the answer is, Christ is so valuable, so satisfying to Paul, so massive in Paul's reality, so massive in his heart, that when Paul loses everything in this life, and he only gets more of Jesus, that's gain. What does that say about the value of Jesus? I mean, honestly, if I found out that I was going to die soon, uh, I, I would weep 
unbelievably hard for weeks and weeks. That would just, just having to deal with that, it would be, that would be normative. It's what the psalmists do. It's what Jesus did at Lazarus' tomb. You're, there would be massive weeping. It would feel like the, the ground had shaken under my feet, I think. I think it would be the hardest imaginable trial I could think of, other than my children not being believers upon death. I don't think there's a worse thing than that. But as far as this, that's the worst thing I could think of. And, and I'm sitting there going, okay, yeah, I would mourn and I would cry my tears, but at the end of that grieving process, could I actually say that when this cancer takes me out and I lose all this invaluable stuff, it's gain because I get more of him? I, I pray and hope that for all of us when that day comes, whether we're 17 or 77 or 97, I pray that we are so deep rooted in Jesus, that yes, there are real scalding tears of loss. I mean, Paul doesn't ignore this. Chapter 2, he talks about Epaphroditus about to die, and he says, his death would have put, given me sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's not against weeping over death, but Paul says, listen, at the end of the day, Jesus is so much bigger, so much richer, so much more satisfying that to lose the unthinkable and to get more of Jesus is gain. And that's how you glorify Jesus in your death. That's how. He has to be so really significant and wonderful in your eyes that to lose what this world has temporarily and to get more of Jesus is gain. That's how you glorify Jesus through your death. I'm going backwards in my points. That's okay. So let's do how to magnify Christ in your life. Let's hear it again. I'll cut out some words so you can hear it. My desire is that Christ will be honored magnified in my body by life, for to me to live is Christ. You know, you see the, foot, you know, you see the silly shirts, football is life. Like, wow, that's a life right there. Uh, nothing wrong with football. That's a good gift from God. But football is life. It's, it can't bear that kind of weight, okay? The kind of significance. Um, whatever it might be, romantic relationships, you know, sexuality, Whatever it might be, riches and fame, these are life. And Paul says, those things are cheap substitutes. I found life. Paul was an adult convert, and he, was a, he went from zero to 100 overnight in his passion for Jesus. And he said, listen, just look at chapter 3 real quick. Chapter 3, you can flip to that. Look at verse 7. You can hear him say the same kind of stuff. What does it mean that your life is Christ? 3-7. But whatever gain I had... Do you hear the math going on here? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, value, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen to his longing, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me just go a couple more verses. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Paul says, my life is wrapped up in Jesus, and Paul only ultimately cares about the things in his life insofar as their means to getting back to Jesus. So I'm coming near the end, but let me just talk about this for a moment. Paul might ask us, are your daily activities ends or means? You, you probably know what I mean. So is your job an end or a means. If it's an end, then you will become a workaholic. What I mean is, your worth and your life is wrapped up in work. You, you know, you're, you're advancing, maybe it's financial, maybe it's just making a name for yourself in the corporate world or in the whatever world, maybe it's in the, maybe it's in the ministry. But if, if that's what it is, those things become ends in and of themselves, detached from Jesus. And we worship and bow down to those things, but Paul says, no, 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 don't let the things in your life be ends let them be means of ministry to others for the name of Jesus. And I'll just show you how Paul paints this picture. Look with me here, verse 22 of chapter 1. He, he explains what to live as Christ means. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh, that is to live, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul sees ministry as a means of helping others advance in their joy of faith. He wants you to advance in the gospel and to have your joy expand like Greg was talking about, that joy expand so that we could live lives that honor Christ. I, don't, I did not notice this, but verse 26, when it says Christ Jesus, did you know that that's the 16th time in this letter he's already said the word Christ? The 16th time I counted them. 16th time. Just bear with me. Verse 1, I'm not going to read all of it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, I am, uh, he will present you blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, I yearn with you... I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, that you might be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Verse 13, everyone knows that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 15, some preach Christ out of envy. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Verse 18, in only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Verse 19, through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will deliver me. Verse 20, now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Guys, Paul is saturated with Jesus. I, I was reading a commentary on this this week, and I wept one afternoon because of how convicted I was over Paul's incredible Christ-centeredness. I thought, I am not there yet. I am not this centered on Christ as the Apostle Paul is. And so as we close here in prayer, I want us to pray and ask the Lord that Christ would be central in our affections. I asked Ian that the first song we could sing after the sermon would be, Give Me Jesus. And I pray that as we sing that, we would mean those words from our heart that we would want to be soaking, saturated with the person of Christ so that when we live, it's all about Christ. And when we die, it's even better because we get more of Christ. Please bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, as we hear these words, uh, I am convicted. I know that joy is to be had in the person of your Son. I know that life can only be found in Christ. And for the Christian, death, no matter what the loss, is gain. So, Heavenly Father, we would ask you together as a church, please give us Jesus. We could leave the world behind, as Paul says, give us Jesus. When we come to die, give us Jesus. You can have all this world. Please give me Jesus. Lord, help us to sing this from the bottom of our heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.